This is 50 Shades of Green by Climate Group, your monthly climate podcast exploring all the essential news and views from the U.S. and around the world. I'm Phil Kehoe. And we are here today with another episode of 50 Shades of Green. On this episode, we are talking sub-national governance, how things get done at the local level on climate and the deals and policies and practices and coalitions that go into making this all happen. With us today, we have Nemat Carr, head of subnational governments and the under two coalition at Climate Group, and Eloise Chiku, climate action and resilience program manager at Regions 4. Nemat, Eloise, welcome to the show. We're so happy to have you on. Hello, Phil. Nice to be here. Good to see you again, Phil. I would love for both of you to introduce yourselves and explain what your organizations do. Nemat, if you'd like to go first. Sure. I think you already introduced my title, but I will go on to say that I lead the subnational strategy and work for the climate group. As part of that, our biggest program is delivering impact through the network that we run, which is called the Under Two Coalition, which is the largest global network of states and regions committed to achieving net zero emissions by 2050. For reference, when I say states and regions, I'm talking about the equivalent of, say, a California or a Washington state in the US or a Bavaria in Germany. Equally, in some countries, they're called provinces. In Japan, they're called prefectures. So that's the level of government that we're really talking about here. Really strong level of government. They contain, you know, sort of several thousands of cities sometimes, and they are powerful agents of change as far as climate action is concerned. So that is something that the climate group really recognizes and, you know, sort of takes pride in the position that we hold as secretariat of the Under Two Coalition. Yeah, no, thank you, Nemat. So I'm Eloise and I'm leading the the climate program of uh, Regions 4. And Regions 4, uh, similar to Under 2, we work also with states, provinces, and uh, regional councils. But our focus is more on adaptation. So looking at how uh, regional governments are responding to the climate crisis, but also linking with some of the other crises that our world is facing, such as biodiversity and the sustainable development goals. So we have this particular focus on resilience, and we represent more than 47 regional governments. And we have a particular initiative that is called Regions Adapt that gathers more than 70 regional governments where we help them in their resilience pathways and uh, strategies. That actually is a great segue into my next question. I was wondering... How big is this network that you all are representing and and managing and and working together for? Is this something that's all over the world? I'm just curious about the scope and the scale. Great question, Phil. The Under Two Coalition is a global network. So we have, you know, sort of a presence in almost 40 countries worldwide. As a collective, the coalition represents more than 170 individual states, regions, provinces across these 40 countries. And together with governments who are also endorsers and supporters of the coalition, we make up more than 50% of the global economy. So definitely not insignificant in as far as economic power is concerned. 
just wanted to echo what Nemat was saying. So we're also um, representing uh, more than 47 regional governments around the world, mainly focused on Latin America, Africa, and Europe. And I think what's interesting is we actually share common regions with under two, and we'll, mm -hmm. we'll come back to that later. But I think essentially we, we really work with under two to support our common regions, as we believe that they obviously represent a large scales of citizens around the world. And those joint regions that we have together, we would like to empower them together. Great. Glad that there has been such a, a movement toward really empowering local and, and subnational governments, as I'm sure you've all seen that there's been a bit slower of progress at the international level in terms of deal making and, and getting all of these things together. So it's great to see a lot of this accelerating action at the local level where it can actually have a, a huge, serious impact. To get into the next part of the segment here, I would love to hear more about some of the top issues that are facing these states and regions mm. that they have when it comes to tackling climate change and Really, what, what are governments telling you that are their priorities right now that they're trying to focus on in terms of climate action? Phil, so if you had asked me this question a few years ago, I would have probably said political will to commit to the highest level of ambition. But today, nobody is debating the science. Nobody is debating the real-time impacts that they're feeling of climate change and the damage and devastation that they're seeing around them. So, you know, we've solved that one as far as political will is concerned. Today, governors, premiers, chief ministers all over the world are standing up and owning their responsibility to kind of lead from the front. And we've seen that in, you know, sort of strong examples coming out from, say, South Africa, where KwaZulu-Natal and Hauteng are taking the just transition bull by the horns, or California that's sowing big oil, or, you know, sort of Tokyo that's really looking at urban resilience, for example. So, you know, sort of leaders are recognizing tackling prioritizing climate change is a win-win for the economy, for people, for jobs. The biggest challenge today, I think, that remains is the knowledge that sort of governors, premiers and state governments have and the access to money. So, you know, sort of funding, finance and kind of what's available in terms of opportunities to states and regions. And I think Eloise will agree with me that both Regions 4 and uh, ourselves at Climate Group are trying to solve for both those problems. One of the things that I wanted to get into is that we have a big program on global implementation, which basically means we work with states and regions on how we can accelerate implementation of the required climate action by equipping states and regions with the right level of knowledge. Now, you know, sort of whether that happens through peer exchange, whether that happens through knowledge exchange, whether that happens through capacity building work with experts, all of that kind of gets wrapped up into our global implementation work because we feel that there are solutions and good examples of what's working and perhaps also lessons from what's not working right there in the network. It is our job as the secretariat to make sure that these people are talking to each other. So, you know, sort of we try to make sure through our global implementation work that that level of knowledge proliferates across the network. 
The second thing we're trying to solve for is the money issue. Not because there is a debit. We think there's, you know, plenty of money that's flowing in the investment channels of the world. But the global financial architecture doesn't really recognize or even validate the position of states and regions in a way that they can access some of the opportunities, funding opportunities that exist out there. So again, it is our perhaps even joint endeavor as regions for and climate group to try and solve for that and see how we can get states and regions some access to opportunities to mobilize funding to adopt the right budgeting approaches to deploying the right instruments in terms of green bonds and green banks to be able to mobilize the the amount of money that they require to deliver on the level of ambition that they have because believe you me it's it's going to be a, a tough ride I think I would completely echo what Namat said. I think the main challenge at the moment for regional governments and subnationals is, is really this question of implementation. Yeah, I agree, the political will is there. We've seen regions you know, taking commitments from one cup to the next through the Race to Zero campaign and the Race to Resilience campaigns. We see the ambition is there and the leaders are there. However, when you get to implementation, what we see is that beyond national governments, regional governments have a role to play and have been taking the lead. Just to give you a figure on a report from CDP, which discloses the progress of regions, on 108 regions, we saw that around 66% had a climate action plan strategy in place, really looking at developing local and regional adaptation plans, mitigation plans with concrete actions on the ground. However, what exactly what Namat said, the difficulty is, is going from the planning to the implementation and having the right resources and means, especially for global south regions, to really trigger the implementation and the action. And, and I would really echo what Namat says, and this is part of what we do together and what we want to do further in the future, is really making sure that with the plan comes the action and the means to implement, meaning capacity building, learning, and financing. I mean, it seems like there's a lot of, of moving parts and will and action across a variety of different dimensions related to climate action that a lot of these governments are willing to take. So that's honestly very encouraging and refreshing. I would love to get into my next question about biodiversity. Yeah, I understand that Regions 4 works a lot on biodiversity, while the Under 2 Coalition doesn't. And are, are there any significant overlaps between the climate and biodiversity crisis? And if so, how do you think we can work to address both of these at the same time? Absolutely. I think that's that's a really good question. I think more and more what we realize is that we're, we're dealing with complex crisis, right? Climate change has many components. And one of the components of climate change is its impact on biodiversity. With the rising temperatures, ecosystems are under stress. Our nature and our fora have to respond to this, meaning that there is a huge loss in biodiversity. So really, it's absolutely fundamental today when we're looking notably on adaptation to make sure that solutions in adaptation are nature-based solutions, are connected to our ecosystems. And we have many regions taking the lead in, in putting together these solutions. Just to give you an example, in Africa and Cross River State in Nigeria is looking at a, a large-scale reforestation project to bring back this biodiversity, but also working with people. So they were, they're going to use different ways of using fuel 
just making sure that, you know, you can respond and protect your ecosystem and still deal with the pressures that climate change brings to vulnerable populations. Crises are absolutely linked. They need to be tackled together, but we need to also be careful because some solutions, some climate solutions might not be good for the environment. And this is where actually shaping solutions that look at both crises, making sure they are the right balances between a good climate solution that also has a positive environmental impact is absolutely crucial. And in this sense, I would say regional governments, because they have a territorial scope, looking not just at the urban, but also at the rural, at the water management, at the coastal areas. In this sense, they're absolutely crucial players to involve, to show how they can lead the way in, in, in bringing those two crises together. Wonderful. From your answer, Eloise, and from some of the previous conversation that we've had, I've noticed a lot of talk about adaptation and resilience. And I'm wondering, do you think it's too late to be talking about mitigation and how that plays into emissions reduction. And I guess for the viewers and listeners at home here, if you could give a bit of a, an explanation about what the difference is between mitigation and adaptation and, and resilience is, I think that would be helpful. Yeah, sure. So mitigation is how to reduce your emissions, so your carbon emissions. So it will be looking at solutions such as renewable energy, reducing or even canceling fossil fuel consumption. And adaptation will be looking at how do you respond to the impact. So for example, if the impact of climate change is a flood or a drought, then you will be talking more about adaptation. What is your measures to respond to the impact of climate change? And in this sense, I think it kind of answers your question. You cannot adapt to climate change if we continue to pollute and to uh, produce so much emissions because there is a threshold. After a certain point, we cannot adapt to the impact. So it's absolutely fundamental to mitigate, to reduce our emissions, and also to adapt, notably in those regions in the world, notably southern regions, that are really living the impacts of climate change. And just to mention another term, I think that, that comes a lot in the discussions on climate is this question of of moments of no return, of loss and damage. Today, the next step after adaptation is, is how to respond to irreversible situations. And this is where we talk about repairs. Some regions are not even in a capacity to respond and to adapt. And this is the last stage that we absolutely want to avoid. So therefore, mitigation, I would say, is the first global priority, but allowing southern regions notably to be able to respond to the already felt impact, so adaptation, and then I would say even loss and damage in the case of repairs, it has to come together as a full packet. Phil, I just wanted to come in here and agree with Eloise. I think it's a really important question. And I think it's important to reflect why this question is important as well, because as science has said, that human activity has led to a certain amount of temperature rise, which is leading to certain impacts that we will not be able to avoid in the future. That is why working on climate becomes really important from both perspectives, which is mitigation, which is avoiding the unmanageable 
and adaptation, which is managing the unavoidable. Now, that's quite a convoluted sentence. But what I'm trying to say is, you know, there are communities around the world, livelihoods that are being affected, sea levels that are rising, glaciers that are melting, wildfires that are taking place. It is important to equip communities, societies, cities, and, you know, sort of regions with the right tools to be able to deal with that kind of impact that we are seeing across the world. But in order to avoid that impact getting any worse than it already is, we need to make sure that we limit global warming, whether that's through carbon emissions, whether that's through something like methane or other short-lived climate pollutants. I mean, methane is a gas which has a much higher global warming potential as compared to carbon dioxide. It is 80 times kind of more potent than CO2 as a gas over a 20-year period and is currently responsible for 30% of global warming. Most of the methane is coming from oil and waste in the urban situation. So it's really important to kind of tackle it so that we don't reach that tipping point that Eloise was talking about and get to a place where these changes that we are seeing around the world cannot be kept under, you know, sort of a certain limit. If we if we allow these impacts to kind of grow, we're, we're going to have wildfires like Hawaii in many more places and much worse in density with much more frequency. So we need to make sure we're tackling it from both of those angles. Absolutely. And I think this is a great segue into COP and Mm -hmm. building on the discussions that were had last year's and the agreements related to loss and, and damage, where a lot of these Communities that are involved in the under two and and regions four coalitions, I think there's a lot of room for growth in their role in this upcoming COP. And I would love to hear if you could give the listeners at home a bit of an explainer on what COP is and how it works and, and two, why it's important that states and regions and, and subnational governments are involved, especially as climate justice and loss and damage have come into more of a focus in the past few years. So COP is the annual UN United Nations Global Climate Summit. So the United Nations has a convention called the UNFCCC, the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. And all the countries that are signed up to the UNFCCC meet on an annual basis. That annual meeting is called the COP. This year, the COP is being held in UAE, which means UAE holds the presidency of COP. And it's the 28th time that these parties are going to meet, which is why it's called COP28. Now, the UAE COP28 presidency is really keen that climate change is tackled at all levels of government, which means one, that, you know, sort of the parties to the UNFCCC, the national governments who are signed up to that treaty, you know, sort of they're not alone in this effort. They can be supported by states, regions, provinces, cities, subnational governments everywhere. So there is this element of supporting national governments with local action, which is why subnational governments become so important. But the other kind of piece is that local governments are also closer to the realities of everyday life. They are closer to, you know, sort of the response to climate change impacts. They are the first responders on the climate emergency, which is why it's really important 
for them to be important stakeholders in the outcomes and the negotiations that are held at COP. So what we're pushing for as as organizations that work with this level of government is that they should be a valid part of the conversation. They should be a valid part of decision making. The next ratchet of ambition is going to be in 2025 that states and regions should be an important part of setting that level of ambition because they also are, you know, sort of dealing with the impacts of all these international decisions being taken. And of course, like I mentioned, money is a big issue. So, you know, sort of making sure that they're a part of the conversations that happen around how money will be provided in order to take this climate action. That's why states and regions are important. Just to come back to that and follow what Nemat was saying, I think I think what's important at COP it's it's really a moment to take stock, and I'll use that word because it's actually strategic for this year. Uh, but yeah, taking stock of the progress of national governments and those around them in their progress towards reducing their emissions and also responding to the impact. And and I'm going back to taking stock because this year is what we call the global stock take, and the global stock take is the mechanism of the Paris Agreement that looks at reviewing progress of national governments on their commitments that they during the Paris Agreement, meaning to respect and reduce their emissions by the 1.5 degree target. And so, and so this year is absolutely fundamental because we will be looking at, you know, since Paris Agreement, where are we at? There are some warning signs. Uh, many, we see that the targets are not fully uh, respecting the 1.5 degree, that there is a risk that the 1.5, according to the IPCC, will be not respected and might go above. So, so this year is absolutely important that national governments with their counterparts, like regional governments, kind of raise up their ambitions in what we call their national uh, determined contributions, and that regional governments are involved in reviewing, setting the targets, collaborating with their national governments so that these contributions really take into account the realities, like Nemat said, of, of local populations. And I will just add something around this COP that I think is, is very relevant as well for adaptation and resilience. This year, since the past two years, with since the Glasgow COP, there was this idea that we need to match the target on mitigation of the 1.5 degree to a target on adaptation. And so this year will be normally at the launch at this COP of what we call the global go on adaptation looking at a framework of defining what is the common target for national governments and their counterparts on adaptation. So for us, it's also critical that regional governments are included within this adaptation target. And the last bit on resilience is obviously last year at COP27 in Sharm el-Sheikh was launched the Loss and Damage Fund, which is a fund that would look at financing those areas of non-return or those areas that I was talking about earlier of regions need and actors need to respond to the crisis because they feel the direct impact. And the idea this year is that the fund will be presented and, and the framework behind this fund would be looked at so that the fund can have financing and that that financing architecture would allow different actors, and we're hoping also regions to tap in uh, to be able to respond to the crisis. Nemet, Eloise, thank you so much for joining in on this wonderful conversation. One last thing before we go, 
It would be great to hear from you any advice that you might have for people listening at home who might want to get involved in the climate crisis or fighting for climate action. What sort of things can they do to get involved more at the local level? Yeah, I would just say in the next, you know, governor election or, you know, sort of whatever election is coming up in their local jurisdictions, vote responsibly for the leader who's who'll support climate action. And that's what you and I, Phil, can do on an everyday level, uh, just which is under our control to get the right leaders in place who will know what to do and the right thing to do. Yeah. And maybe just to add here, many of our regional governments engage directly with their citizens in campaigns of raising awareness. I'm thinking, for example, the Basque Country through Urban Klima, their, their climate strategy. They did a, a huge raising awareness campaign on coastal erosion. So I think, I think regional governments are close to them and, and can be their allies in, in sharing messages, in, in learning their source of knowledge. And obviously, there is many ways in which they open up consultations with their citizens. So really keeping that space and looking at the space at, at your level, if you're part of a particular regional government, it could be the best country or others, to see how you can be part of the solutions that they put together as they are very often open to citizen engagement. Wonderful. Thank you both so much again. Really appreciated having you on, Nemet and Eloise, and looking forward to seeing more of the work of Under 2 and Regions 4 in the lead up to COP and beyond. Thank you very much, Phil. Thanks, Phil. Thanks for having us. Thanks again for tuning in. Be sure to check us out online at climategroup.org and stay tuned for all our amazing events. Climate Group's 50 Shades of Green is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon, and Google. Stay well, and we'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.